jobs disappear all the time. There are mergers, there are financial crises, all sorts of things. And I've lived through all of them and I've had a couple of jobs that just blew up on me that you know I thought would be great opportunities that I'd have forever. Thrive friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. Have you ever wondered how you could invest 10% of your time and resources to become an entrepreneur, but without losing a steady paycheck? My guest today is Patrick McGuinness, who will help us answer this puzzling question. Patrick is a professional colleague, and as many of you know, he is the inventor of the term FOMO, He's best-selling author for his books, FOMO, and most recently, The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job, which I'll ask him about. He is a TED speaker, host of a hit podcast, FOMO Sapiens, one of my favorite, and he has been featured in New York Times, Financial Times, The Guardian, you name it. Patrick, welcome on Thrive. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Lovely having you. Now, let's start with a fun fact about Patrick. Patrick is an inventor not only of the term FOMO, but a slew of fear of. So we have FOBO, fear of better option. We have FODA, fear of doing anything. Patrick, how many of this fear of are you planning to coin? Well, I have, I have another one, which is fear of going out, which was what we all lived through and have been living through in the last year. But what's funny is, I mean, I, I have, we'll see how many more I come up with, but other people are inventing new ones all the time. I have a list of tons of them. Every time somebody says a faux word, they send it to me. And so there was one the other day that somebody sent to me. So listen, it's, uh, we can go on and on and on, but I'm really focusing on FOMO and FOBO. Those are the two that I think are most relevant to, to people. Lots of great topics to chat about today. And let's start with your book, The 10% Entrepreneur. I find the content extremely relevant to the gig economy in which we live. You suggest, and I'll quote you here, investing just 10% of your time and resources, you can become an entrepreneur without losing a steady paycheck. So let's assume you are talking to someone who works in a stable job and they are afraid of better options. So they have FOBO because they say have a family that they need their support. How can they make this happen, Patrick? Yeah, it's, listen, it's a, it's a feeling a lot of people have. First of all, when it comes to being an entrepreneur, so many of us feel FOMO because we see people who are entrepreneurs that it looks so great, right? It's like, mm -hmm. okay, who doesn't want to work for themselves, have the opportunity to make a lot of money if they're successful? Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to build something? I mean, those all are really, attractive things. But of course, the thing about FOMO is that it's based on the perception that there's something that you want to do, but th that's great. But the actual reality of that thing could be that it's not very fun or attractive. And in fact, you know, we have to admit the fact that the stats show us, in fact, these are stats that were done, uh, came from uh, the work of Professor Shikhar Ghosh of Harvard Business School, that, you know, the vast majority of startups fail. 70% of, of, of startups do not generate expected return, right? So, so I, I get why somebody would be afraid of quitting their job to be an entrepreneur. And that's exactly why I came up with the idea of the 10% entrepreneur, because I was afraid too. I get it. 
But at the same time, what I learned uh, in, through, the, through, through, through life and working is that there are no safe jobs. Like you cannot rely on uh, one job to, to feel that you will sort of, um, you, can, you cannot look to one job because jobs disappear all the time. There are mergers, there are financial crises, all sorts of things. And I've lived through all of them and I've had couple of jobs that just blew up on me that, you know, I thought would be great opportunities that I'd have forever. So as a result, you cannot rely on just one job at the same time. Entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is risky. How do you sort of combine the best of both worlds? How do you combine stability with opportunity? And that's why I recommend the 10% entrepreneur approach, which is to spend part of your time, at least 10% of your time and money building things on the side that make a portfolio of uh, things that you will take with you every time you move in your career. And so you're really building your own safety net. You're also building your own upside, but you're doing it part-time. And so you don't have to worry about taking the risk. And if it goes well, then maybe you go full-time. So that's the approach. Um, and I, you know, I think the proof is in the pudding because so many people are doing this. It's incredible. Every day I get emails uh, or tweets or whatever from people who have done this and they find it extremely uh, efficacious. Thank you for sharing this. Reading your book, I love the part where you describe five types of the 10% entrepreneurs. How did you define these types? And would you mind elaborating on them with the audience and whether you have seen them through the emails and tweets you receive from people communicating with you and who applied the 10% principle? Yeah. So when I was researching the book, you know, I decided to write this book and, and I, um, I just started to sort of interview people mm -hmm. and I interviewed, I think I probably entered at least 50 people who were doing some sort of 10%. And of course they were my own experiences. And as I categorized them, I realized they sort of generally fell into five different subgroupings. Mm -hmm. And the five subgroupings are the angel, the advisor, the founder, the aficionado and the 110% entrepreneur. And I can explain each of them but briefly. The angel is somebody who invests their money for ownership in a company. The advisor invests their time for sweat equity in a company. The founder starts and runs a business without quitting their day job. The aficionado is a subtype of 10% entrepreneur that is doing a business that's more than just about sort of, uh, you know, the business itself is about passion. So, you know, maybe investing in a restaurant and because you like to cook there. And the 110% entrepreneur is somebody who is uh, already an entrepreneur and is doing all these things on the side. So they're just sort of like a super entrepreneur. And um, I did that as, as I thought about that, you know, they, they each one of us is, is different, but the thing that binds them all together is that they're all about being an owner of something, you know, you want to be, you don't just want to, you know, driving an Uber, which is a perfectly fine thing to do is not 10% entrepreneurship because you don't own any of that. You know, you just get a paycheck, right? Gig economy, 10% entrepreneurs have ownership in a company and that they can, you know, go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and it's still growing. And so that's the whole idea is to build ownership stakes and a bunch of things over time. Mm -hmm. And do you think there is some common theme among the five types, of, say certain level of risk taking, or they also are on a spectrum from extreme risk taking to low risk taking? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And it's, I like that. I've never been asked that question. So so <laughs> nice job. Uh, I would say the way I think about it is this. Um, they're all about 
they all have some risk, of course, because they all involve new ventures and all new ventures are, are inherently risky. Mm -hmm. The difference is how much time and capital you devote. So when you are an angel investor, you don't have to put that much time in, but you do have to put capital. And so you could lose mm -hmm. the money. If you're a founder, you have to put a lot of time in and maybe some capital. And so it's really about figuring out for you and your own personal portfolio, how much capital, how much time you have, how much you can invest in each of those. And then that helps you pick out the way that you engage as a 10 percenter. And of course, you don't necessarily just do one. I've done all five at this point and they're mm -hmm. all a little different, but it's great. You can sort of build. I think you got, you know, obviously you start with one, but as you learn, because like anything else, you, you learn so much doing this, you open new doors to different types of engagement in the future. This is so interesting. So we are not one type. We can be all five types over our life journey. Most definitely. I started out as an angel. Like I was the, you know, we didn't know each other back then, but I was the least entrepreneurial person I knew. Mm -hmm. Really, not that I'm, I'm listen, I'm a creative, I'm, I'm hardworking, I'm competitive, but like, I just was not going to be an entrepreneur. I saw my friends who did it and I thought like, that is just not for me. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I know how hard it is. And like, I like to sleep at night. And um, what happens over time is that as you learn and you see things, you just start pushing yourself in new directions and finding ways to do things. And so I personally have been, live that experience. This brings me to a point about the 10%. You know, we're all familiar with the Pareto's uh, principle of 20-80 rule. 20% 20 of work leads to 80% of the outcome. I'm curious, where do you see the 10% investment of time and resources in reference to the 20-80 rule? It's funny because I actually talked about this at dinner last night. Were you listening <laughs> to my dinner conversation? Uh, maybe. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> you were at the Odeon in Tribeca at the next table. Everybody's outside, so you could have heard us. Um, <laughs> And we were talking about the, this exact concept. It's funny. So you, it's just something I talked about and is fresh in my memory. And the way I do think that, yes, when you are a 10 percenter, inherent in this concept is the idea that you know, you are, you're not doing it full time, mm -hmm. right? You cannot. And therefore, you need to bring a lot of resources in and, and outsource a lot and like be thoughtful about the way that you build something so that it's sustainable for you. And so therefore you have to sort of, um, you have to sort of make compromises and you cannot do it all. And I think, you know, now having as, as a full-time entrepreneur, as somebody who lives that life, like I recognize how important that is because when you're an entrepreneur, you could work all the time. Like you could work, mm -hmm. you, you could work 24 hours a day and still have things to do. It's like horrifying, mm -hmm. um, which is something you don't experience in a normal job. And so I think learning how to think in terms of the 20, 80, 20 rule is fundamental to survival. And you sort of, you have to learn it. Like it's forced upon you when you do this. You think that the 20, 80 rule is not hard and fast or like doesn't have to be 20 and 80, it could be 10, 90, could be 15, 85. Yes. Yeah. I think. I think the, 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 the most important thing is just to know that there is, there are certain things you would do that are highly impactful that will really move the needle and that to get hundred percent of the way there will be so much more work. And sometimes you have to compromise for yourself. Totally agree with you. Yeah. And before we move on, I'd like to ask people watching this interview to open a new tab and look up patrickbeginnis.com and click on resources where you will find great videos, podcasts, and blogs that are relevant to any entrepreneur. 
You can also find the link to his terrific podcast, FOMO Sapiens, and the links are posted in the YouTube description below. So please check them out. We are talking of FOMO Sapiens. You first coined this term, uh, to be more specific, you first coined the FOMO term in an op-ed in The Harvest in 2004. And at the time you were studying at Harvard Business School. You started your podcast, FOMO Sapiens, in 2018, but it took you 16 years to put the concept in a book. I'm curious why it took so long to write a book about the concept. I mean, yeah, you're right, by the way. And oh boy, how much time do we have here? Let me just, I'm going to lay down on the couch like I'm at a therapist's office. But essentially, this is the story. I came out of business school. I had no plans of writing any books. I never thought I'd do any of the things that I do today. I want, I was going to work in private equity on wall street and I did that and it was going perfect, you know, per, pretty well. And then in 2008, I was working at a division of AIG and AIG blew up and my, my whole career blew up like in a spectacular fashion. It was horrible. And after I recovered from the shock, which took me like three years, <laughs> I, I can imagine I ended up sort of doing these 10 percents because I was so traumatized by having my career blow up. And that was my, my, I wanted to diversify. So started doing all my 10% and like, you know, the FOMO thing, FOMO wasn't like, I, I used the term and I had written the article and everything, but I, you know, I didn't realize that it, it had a life of its own. In fact, you know, I started working on the 10% book. I got an agent and, you know, was working on my book project and for the 10% concept. And right in the middle of trying to sell that book, we had been rejected by 33 publishers, okay? People were like, yeah, it's, it, that's what publishing is. And so the problem I was having was people were like, well, this is a really cool concept, but we don't know who the heck this guy is. Like, I think I had like 900 Twitter followers, you know, I just didn't have a profile. And right in the middle of this, I got a, an email from a journalist uh, named Ben Schreckinger, who's now at Politico. And he was a freelancer at the time, right out of college. And he said, I'm writing a an article about the history of FOMO. I've traced it to you. And I said, yes, that's correct. But why would you want to write about FOMO? Like, I don't understand wh why. And he said, don't you know it's in the dictionary? And I did not know that it was in the dictionary. Ooh. It had been included the year before. And so I was totally in shock. And then, you know, I did a bunch of research and I realized that it had become this thing. Um, and so that was when I actually, because of that, I sold my first book. The book came out and then I was really happy with the 10% entrepreneur, but after about a year or two, you sort of want to talk about something new and everywhere I went all over the world, whether it was, you know, Latin America or the Middle East or Asia or Europe, whenever I would give a talk, people always want to take a selfie with me because I invented FOMO. And so one night I was in Beirut and somebody asked for a selfie and I was like, this is a sign from above that I need to write a book about FOMO because if I'm in Beirut and people want to take pictures with me, you know, this is the thing. And so that's why I, I started working on a book about FOMO. And then I, I was offered a chance to do a podcast. So I thought I'll do it about FOMO. That would be kind of interesting if I can figure out the right concept. And as I was working on coming up with a name, FOMO Sapiens, you know, just seemed like the perfect name for the show. I didn't know that you didn't know it's in the dictionary. It's a mind blower. I know people don't believe me. They're always like, I mean, I get it. It sounds crazy, but I really didn't know. And then I felt kind of stressed out that I had, you know, it's like, wow, I'm, I've missed this opportunity. Um, I did a TV interview um, with this guy on Cheddar, um, John, um, I can't remember his last name, but he he kind of like made fun of me on air and was like, you know, you, you've like really blown your opportunity to make a lot of money off of this. And I was just like, well, that's not helpful. 
but it inspired me. I was I was kind of mad at him for that, and it but inspired me to do something about it. So thank you, John, for <laughs> being so mean to me that day because in the end it worked out. Worked out. So to put the FOMO in context, it was coined around the time Facebook was launched. And I use Facebook as a landmark here because there were social media before, but Facebook may be the biggest social media to happen since 2005. And since that time, the sapiens fear of missing out changed as our interaction moved from mostly the in-person in the early 2000s to mostly now virtual meetings and social media platforms. So let's fast forward to the 2020 decade. In your opinion, how our fear of missing out and fear of better options changed because of the almost exclusive virtual interaction and Zoom meetings that we have now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, change in our lives. And you know, it's funny you mentioned Facebook because one of the things that, um, that you may not know is that uh, when I was inventing FOMO, Mark Zuckerberg was living a mile from me on the at Harvard College, oh. coming up with Facebook. And over the summer, one of my good friends rented her apartment to some undergrads who then like left it really messy. And the name of the guy who 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 rented it was Mark Zuckerberg. You missed so, this opportunity, Patrick. Isn't that crazy? I remember she was like, oh, this undergrad was such a slob and I'm so mad. And 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 it turned out it was Mark. So, hey, Mark, uh, you should probably apologize. Now, in terms of Facebook, um, the thing is this. When, when we went into lockdown in March, I remember thinking like, okay, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to like, I'm going to read all the, I had a stack of books. I made a stack in my living room. I'm going to read every book. And then I was going to watch every show that, cause I like, I never had time to watch TV. I'm like, I'm going to watch succession finally, you know? And so I did. And I did for three whole weeks. I read and I watched TV and I baked and did all the stuff. That, and then the problem was I had my phone with me and my computer. And so I spent more time online than ever before. And so I think the reality is that people use their digital devices as a coping mechanism for mm -hmm. this moment, which is very understandable. It is awful. Like this has been so difficult. Let's just all mm -hmm. remember that. Mm -hmm. But like spending 19 hours on Instagram doesn't make you feel better. And so that's been a real problem. And I think, the, you know, the one, the one benefit of this whole, there's a lot of benefits to this experience. I think we've learned a lot as human beings. And like, I certainly have learned a lot. One of the benefits is that I've recognized, you know, I, I really, um, value things more than I used to. When I see people, I, I don't, not on my phone. I'm, I want to be with them, but I would say that, um, the, and I think the fact that we've gone digital and that fact that, you know, I had a meeting, I'm doing a lot of speaking in Europe right now because I don't, you know, and I used to have to get on a plane to do that because we didn't even think about doing things over zoom. All that's great. But the toll of this digital digitization and extreme connectivity and we just, it's, it's very damaging and especially to kids. So I, I think that is really tough. And I think about children who've never lived without social media and they, it's so pervasive and they're bullied over it. And like the damage that the things are causing is incredible. So we have a lot of problems to solve. So you think the definition will evolve of what we are missing out and what the better options will be? Well, the thing is that uh, FOMO has been around since the dawn of time. 
It has always been part of what it is to be a human, mm -hmm. but it is social media and connectivity that makes FOMO worse. And so the more time we spend on those devices, the worse we have FOMO. And so I think it's all about, it's, it's, it's really about the fact that like the less tied you are to reality and the more tied you are to a virtual world, the more at risk you are. And we see that now. I think we see that in the aftermath of our election, how many people have been radicalized on social media and the actions they're taking that are very damaging to our democracy. These are people, these are your neighbors and they have become extremists because they're spending too much time on the internet. It's very, like if people had, you know, things to, places to go and people to see, they wouldn't be at home posting hate on the internet, you know? So that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. I mean, it's super depressing, but like, that's where we are. That's very true, especially when the social media cater to your interest. Totally. So they know if you are interested in X, most of the ads, most of the content that they will be putting on your Instagram or Facebook will be relevant to what you're searching for. So we are almost oblivious to the other side. Yes, it's all designed and manufactured to manipulate you. And I, you know, I love social media, by the way. I'm not one of these people who's like gonna cancel their Facebook or whatever. Like, I like Facebook. I, I think it's fine, mm -hmm. but I don't spend a lot of time on it um, because I actually have to, I had to take a break from Twitter because Twitter is just such a bad place for me. So I'm very careful about knowing how it makes me feel. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people just maybe haven't figured that out yet. And so they're, they're being manipulated. On this note, organizations now started to offer work from home as a new standard. So some people will be 100% virtual 24-7 for X number of years. What are some of the tips that you would suggest to manage FOMO while working remotely? Yeah, it's it's absolutely true what you're saying. And I've had on FOMO Sapiens a guest. I've had him on twice now. His name's Dan Shabell. Uh, do you know Dan? Mm -hmm. He is an authority on this. He's written a book called Back to Human all about mm -hmm. how to maintain corporate culture um, in a work from home environment. So Dan, um, if you, you can check out those episodes, uh, FOMOSapiens.com will have all that stuff. But you know, just to give you a couple of the highlights, I think number one is um, there are a lot of interesting technologies being created right now to allow for more um, like informal interaction with remote. Mm -hmm. And for example, um, you could do it on Clubhouse even. There's a, there needs to be people in order to be successful in an environment need to be able to you know know each other. And it can't be that every meeting is a Zoom meeting and it's just you know a topic and then we move on. So creating in, informal opportunities to connect is really important. And and you know there's a bunch of ways to do that, but 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 that that's number one. I think number two is um, you must bring people together at times. Like being fully remote forever, it's just hard. And so you know when people can travel again, I, you know I think all the money that's being saved on paying rents should go into a budget for offsites and things like that. Um, and then number three is I think you need to create a culture in which people can openly discuss the challenges of working from home and feel um, be vulnerable about that because it's really hard, especially people who have children at home that they're trying you know take care of. Like it's just we've gotten used to it now, but like it is a, especially for women in particular who are usually the primary caregivers. We've seen 
the the she session i think is the term that's being used where women are leaving the workforce as never before so like there are so many mental health challenges and family challenges that are, that come up in the work from home environment that we need to talk about and in fact the number one dan i i recall said something to me that was kind of stunning about the percentage of people who feel don't feel well mentally has gone crazy during the pandemic. I, I want to say it's in the 40% or something um, where it used to be much lower. And so employers have to deal with it. Like you can't just be like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, too bad. No, now employers are going to have to worry about the mental health of their um, employees and help them. That's very true. And there are reports from the CDC about the increase in reporting mental health problems and also increase in addiction over the past year, which is not surprising given how everything was shut down and there is less interaction, there is less human support. Patrick, this is a question I ask every guest on Thrive. We all had setbacks where we managed to pick ourselves up and thrive. Would you mind sharing one of yours, say a time of fear of better option or fear of missing out or something else and how did you overcome it? Well, when I, uh, I mentioned a bit before that my career blew up in 2008 and it wasn't just my career. I also had like a health crisis caused by excess stress. I ended up at the doctor and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I couldn't really leave my house for a week. I had blurry vision for three months. I was a mess. It was awful. I thought I was dying, uh, you know, and, and so it forced me to make a lot of changes and frankly it was very liberating. I think when you think you're going to lose everything, mm -hmm. you sort of, uh, you sort of feel emboldened to make really good changes in your life. And so I made a bunch of changes. I actually got in much better shape. Uh, I took care of myself better. Uh, and then I felt free to take more risk and to do the things that I do today. And so I would say that, uh, the, what is the, the takeaway from that, of course, is that, you know, you will have like there is no, there's a great book. I had a, a, a author called Bruce Feiler on FOMO Sapiens. He wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions, and it's all about how we manage transitions in life. It's a fantastic read. It's stunning. Basic point of, uh, that he makes is that all of us will have major things happen to us. Somebody will die. There will be an illness. We'll get lose our job. Like these are, these things happen. You just cannot avoid them. Yes. Sometimes all at the same time. And it's all about how you respond and that people who learn how to respond instead of having post-traumatic stress can actually have post-traumatic growth mm -hmm. and be more happy and fulfilled. And this is you know, stuff that if you've ever read Positive Psychology, um, mm -hmm. uh, The Happiness Project by Sean Acor or any, uh, any of that kind of, kind of work, it's, it's in those books. I had never read that stuff because frankly, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. I was sort of like, oh, it's all frou-frou. <laughs> When I read that book, uh, there's a, a, a book called Flourish as well um, that I truly love uh, that, that is all about these. You start to realize like, you know, there, there's incredible progress that can come out of adversity. And so it's all about flipping that experience on, a, on its head and looking for and looking for an opportunity to grow. That's how you how you move forward. You know, the thing is for me is I, I don't come from a wealthy family. You know, mm -hmm. I, I grew up very normal. And so, you know, it's not like my parents are going to bail me out. Like a lot of people I know when they failed their parents, they're still like, well, you know, my parents are worth $50 million. So like it stinks, but like, I'm still going to have a house in the Hamptons. Like that was not a case for me. And so number one, I had to, I just felt very exposed, but number two, I also think I was valuing the wrong things. And so I also learned 
that like some of the things that I thought were so important really weren't. And so that, that was helpful too. And at the time when you were struggling with this health issue, how did this transition happen? Not to come back to strive, but you thrive. Yeah, it's not, it's not something that happens overnight, of course. It took me, uh-huh. I think it took me, I got really sick in October. I was on a business trip in Charleston, West Virginia, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And I woke up in the middle of the night, I had night sweats. I thought I was dying. And then I went to the doctor and then I kind of like had blurry vision until February, believe it or not. Oh. It was crazy. And uh, I went, you know, I, 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 I was very open with my friends what was going on. So like my best friend and I actually went to England on a trip over the holidays in, in December. And I remember feeling slightly better, but still not myself. And then I went to India for a wedding in February. And it was interesting because I got on the plane feeling sick, feeling not so great. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got back two weeks later, I was 100% better. And I don't know why. I think it was just I needed to get out of my environment and feel alive again and have hope. So I would say if you ever go through something like that, um, which you know you may well do because life throws things at us like that, I would encourage you to find the good and find reasons for happiness because life, once you've kind of experienced adversity, I think you really appreciate the good things more. And, and so it's really important to find those things. Thank you for sharing this, Patrick. I know it is not easy. Yeah, I, I actually like, you know, I will tell you, I mean, I talk about this a little bit more now, but I didn't talk about this for a decade because I somehow felt like I'd done something wrong, um, but I don't think that's the case. And so I do think it's important to be open with people. And um, especially now, I think during one thing the pandemic has done for us, it's made us all a little bit more vulnerable. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really good. And I think it will be empowering to many of the people watching us now and who might be going through a situation similar to yours in 2008, where the career just blow in their face and they don't know what to do. Yeah. And that's why I wrote The 10% Entrepreneur. That book is my response to having lived through that. And that's why I think it's such a, uh, it's been interesting because this year, even though the book's been out for five years, the amount of contact, the amount of people reaching out has really gone way back up. And I think it's because in this moment, so many people are forced to reinvent themselves and it's a really powerful way to do that. So so, um, I, I feel very thankful that it's out there and that it's helping people because I truly believe that it works. Thank you for sharing this again, Patrick. Anything you would like to share with your audience on Thrive that you have not shared before in any podcast? Yes. Well, this is, well, I've shared it on my podcast. Does that count? For you, I wouldn't not count. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No, it's just something new that I just did. That's why I am. And it's, it's, I don't usually, I'm my biggest, by the way, I'm really terrible at promoting myself. I just want to put that out there. So, but uh, I'm going to promote myself right now. So everybody. Oh, please do. Please do. (laughs) Um, I just created my first ever course, an audio course mm-hmm. with Himalaya Learning. And so um, it's a 10-part, like, episodic podcast format course about how to be a part-time entrepreneur based on the 10% entrepreneur. And so it just came out on January um, 14th. And it um, you can go check it out. And if you mm-hmm. use the code part-time, you go to uh, Himalaya.com 
slash part-time and mm -hmm. use the promo code part-time, you can get 14 days free and check it out. So I'm really proud. I, I, I was listening to it yesterday because I was waiting for somebody and I was just like, wow, like I did a really good job. I was really proud of myself because I'd never done that before. And I think it's, I, I love it. Like I'm really, I'm really happy with it. So I promise you, if you check it out, um, you'll, you know, you'll like it. I really do. I think it's good. I will sign up for sure. And part-time one word, no part dash time. One word, P-A-R-T-T-I-M-E. Okay, terrific. And where can we find this link on your website? Or it's not there yet? You know what? Thank you for telling me that. I don't think we put a link, which we're supposed to do. So, oh my goodness, I am, I can't believe myself. What is wrong with me? Okay. No, nothing wrong with you. No, I'm keeping, by the really way, you, I'm writing that down. I will definitely check it out. And people watching us, please check this out. It is a summary of the 10% entrepreneur and beyond that. And hopefully everyone will find the technique in some way relevant to the economy we live in. It's always good to have 10% of the time invested in something outside of what we do on day-to-day -day basis, because we never know. We never know how life will change. We never know how environment will change. And especially in an environment where there's a lot of flux. What a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Patrick. Uh, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. I appreciate your presence. And I would love to have you again and talk for an episode just about the FOBO and how we can make decisions. Sounds great. I'd love to. So for people watching this episode of Thrive, if you're enjoying the conversation, please share the link on your social media so that others will benefit from Patrick's insight. And also remember to check Patrick's website at patrickmcginnis.com and subscribe to his intriguing podcast, FOMO Sapiens. I promise you, you will enjoy it. And until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you. Please click subscribe and don't forget to introduce yourself in the comment section below so that I get to know you. Thank you.